Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Elaine Seaskin. Today's episode is a summary of some of the most clinically relevant papers on viral hepatitis from the recent Virtual International Liver Congress, the annual meeting of EASL, the European Association for the Study of the Liver. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Stefan Zoizem. Dr. Zoizem is Chief of the Department of Medicine at the J.W. Goethe University Hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. This podcast is a recording from a recent live webinar. If you would like to follow along with the slides from the webinar as Dr. Zoizem speaks, please go to the show notes. Dr. Zoizem, please proceed. Hello, everybody. Um, It's a pleasure to bring the key clinical studies which are probably changing our practice to you and I'm happy to take as many questions as you may have. And we divided the section into hepatitis B presentation, hepatitis C, and we also have quite a substantial section on delta hepatitis because there's a lot of activity ongoing here with new treatments. With respect to hepatitis B, we have two directions currently. One direction is actually a very cheap option that is stopping long-term nuke treatment and see whether the immune system can control the disease after some years of nucleotide suppression of delta of hepatitis B replication. The other is the development of new drugs in the field of hepatitis B, which I'm going to summarize in a minute. We have seen a number of so-called stop-nuke trials in the past, and I'd just like to refer to the large control study which was presented last year, the German multicenter study, which actually showed that in patients who had an HBS antigen below 1,000 I use per ml, that the chances to lose S antigen and to have a zero conversion is quite substantial and maybe an attempt and it has led into an appropriate change in the European guideline. There is a discrepancy in the international guidelines so far, therefore we need more data on stop nuke in patients who were suppressed for several years before. This is here a randomized multicenter open-label trial from 11 centers from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and interestingly also Ethiopia. And we are not, uh, we have not get uh, any reports on the S antigen loss so far, but it gives some more insight into the safety of the stop nuke strategy. They had 127 HPE negative patients with no history of cirrhosis, that's always very important because you have to expect some flares in some patients. We'll cover that in a second. Therefore, you should never stop the treatment in patients with cirrhosis. So these were patients without cirrhosis and they were at least on antiviral therapy for 24 months. And they randomized the patient um, after stopping and restarted therapy at what they call a low threshold, which was defined with ALT levels above 80 units per ml and HPV DNA levels above 2000, and a restart in those patients at a high threshold, which was defined with ALT levels above 100 IUs per ml for at least four months, or ALT increases over 400 international units for at least two months. And they included um, uh, a lot of patients which were mainly on tenofovir, a third were on entecavir, and they report the safety in this trial. Overall, they had nine patients, which refers roughly to 7%, who had a severe flare in the first year. It was only one patient who had higher bilirubin levels above 38 millimole per liter and all eight cases of severe flare occurred in patients, interestingly, who stopped tenofovir, which may be relevant, but may be just a by chance finding. The severe flare was not associated with age, gender, or the duration of the previous antiviral therapy, which, however, was at least 24 months. And you see in the left 
corner in the table that um, there was a clinical relapse only in a third of patients, or you can say it was in a third of patients. But it means vice versa that two thirds of the patient actually had no clinical relapse and no need to continue antiviral therapy. Nevertheless, I should remind everybody that these patients require long-term follow-up. Perhaps eventually they will require later on in, their, um, in the biology of the disease, again, some treatment. Let's focus on the, eight, on the nine patients who had a severe flare. And here we had, um, with retreatment, undetectable HBV DNA levels and normalized ALT levels in eight out of the nine patients. And there was interestingly one patient with a spontaneous decline of HBV DNA without restarting therapy. So overall, um, the message here of this study is that if you feel already confident to consider stopping UK treatment according to, for example, the European guideline, um, you have to expect in probably five to 10% of patients a severe uh, flare. And uh, this requires that you exclude cirrhosis in those patients, first of all, but that there is a high chance um, to uh, recover those patients with retreatment with nucleotide analogs. Therefore, if you have a very close uh, follow and thorough follow-up in those patients, it appears a safe strategy, which if you look in all those uh, studies, at least um, uh, allows in two-thirds of the patients not to restart therapy and just to offer those patients um, long-term follow-up. So the nuke non the stop nuke therapy is a very interesting approach which probably needs a little bit more fine tuning and we are expecting the h uh, b s antigen loss in this study as well in other studies really to define the efficacy another interesting study in the b field was the question of extrahepatic malignancy in treated versus untreated patients in korea there are huge databases by the health uh, insurances and the national uh, healthcare systems because it's a centralized system. So they were able actually to compare almost um, uh, 91,000 patients with newly uh, diagnosed chronic hepatitis B from 2012 to 2014 with almost 700,000 controls which were matched for age, sex, and socioeconomic status and the area uh, where they lived. And they actually compared the risk of developing an extrahepatic malignancy in patients which were uh, nuke-treated, nuke-untreated, and they compared it to respective controls. And you see that the risk of nuke-untreated patients with chronic hepatitis B is clearly increasing the chances and the risk to develop extrahepatic malignancy, that the risk in nucleotide, nucleic acid, uh, nucleotide untreated patients with chronic hepatitis B um, is definitely higher to develop cancer compared to the nuke treated patients with chronic hepatitis B, and that there was no difference overall in the nuke treated patients with chronic hepatitis B versus those who were without chronic hepatitis B and served as a control. If you look for the development of malignancy, this is a sensitivity analysis, you see that this change was already observed after 12 months, but continued over longer periods of observation. Interesting, of course, the types of cancer which were observed. And here in the left corner uh, in the table, you see the nuke untreated patients, which have a greater risk versus controls, so patients without chronic hepatitis C, for the development of both solid tumors and hematologic cancer. And you see that the highest risk for nuke untreated patients versus control was for the development of non um, uh, Hodgkin lymphoma, but there was also a substantially increased risk to develop pancreatic or bile duct cancer, but also other solid cancer entities 
were more likely to develop in nuke untreated patients versus controls. If you now look for nuke treated patients who had a higher risk versus control, um, there, there was a significant uh, increase in the development of breast and kidney cancer. And the last table here compares patients who were treated with a nuke and infected with hepatitis B versus those who were untreated but infected with the hepatitis B um, uh, virus. And here we observed, or the authors observed, a higher risk to develop prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer. However, the risk was smaller with breast cancer. Would have been interesting to see a correlation in this study also according to the viral load, but this was not yet reported. Just a brief summary on the new treatment options which are currently developed. So there are certain entities. Um, there was little new data on the um, so-called CAMS, capsid assembly modifiers, but Easel showed some uh, additional data on these compounds listed here in the left column, which are either um, RNA uh, interference uh, interacting agencies or actually new prodrugs of uh, polymerase uh, inhibitors or uh, drugs which are uh, inhibiting um, some uh, poly, uh, polymerase um, uh, domains. Um, then you have the siRNA molecules and you have uh, drugs which are still uh, uh, dealing as an agonist on toll-like receptors and also GALNAC conjugated serNAs. Overall, the message I would say is that none of those uh, drugs and uh, clinical um, approaches by itself seem to be able to increase the functional cure rates. Therefore, we have to await further combination of various uh, drug entities and see whether they are going to improve the functional cure rate, but we should not keep out of our view that all those compounds have to really uh, support uh, us and convince us with optimal safety data because we otherwise have a safe and effective treatment with our nucleotide polymerase inhibitors, entecavir and uh, tenofovir, and therefore there are very high hurdles also on the safety of these compounds. With that, I would actually like uh, to summarize the hepatitis B part. Stopnuke is a very interesting approach in biologically suppressed non-serotic e-antigen negative patients. It appears to be relatively safe if you have a, um, a very narrow and dense uh, follow-up period and are aware of the flares, which can be expected in 5 to 10% of patients but they can be safely rescued by re-entering patients on new therapy. There is the issue of extrahepatic malignancy in patients with chronic hepatitis B being treated or untreated. That should be kept in mind in the surveillance of the patients. And there are several novel agents in the development with the attempt to improve functional cure, which is S-antigen seroconversion but we need more combinations of those compounds also in combination with direct antiviral agents and immune modulators. With that, I would like to move to the hepatitis C field. And here was an interesting approach to involve the pharmacists uh, in the screening um, for hepatitis C in France. Overall, they uh, asked uh, a number of pharmacists um, which had to be able to um, test at least 10 patients um, per week for anti-HCV. And there was uh, money for a total of 5,000 uh, tests. And the screening should have been conducted by the pharmacists in persons which had at least one risk factor to acquire hepatitis C. So patients, when tested positive for HCV, 
were then referred immediately for PCR testing and also the assessment of liver fibrosis by the FibroScan. And all the patients which were eligible by positive HCV RNA detection uh, were then immediately treated. Overall, there were um, more than 650 tests uh, performed and there were a number of patients who had a positive HCV RNA results, roughly half of those who were tested positive for anti-HCV, and they were all linked to care and actually achieved a sustained biologic response. Interesting approach to involve more people in the healthcare um, uh, uh, setting for screening in a point of care situation. There are additional interesting data presented by the German Hepatitis C Registry, and this was a kind of uh, definition who are actually the patients who are lost for follow-up before or after achieving an end-of-treatment response by the typical uh, antiviral therapies. There was in the large cohorts of almost 8,000 patients, yeah, more than 900 which were lost to follow-up, approximately 50% of this number either before achieving the end of treatment or after the end of therapy. In the overall population, the SVR rates were typically high as we are familiar with, with the modern treatments. If you then look what were the particular characteristics of patients you lost during treatment or immediately after treatment before assessing the SVR12 um, uh, virological endpoint, the multivariate regression analysis showed that you are rather likely to lose a patient when he is male, when he is at younger age, when he has a history of drug abuse and or is on an opioid substitution therapy. A lower risk of losing a patient was associated with HCV, HIV co-infection. And interestingly, that's the biggest surprise for me, also in psychiatric disorders, which actually implies that comorbidities which require um, a, a constant surveillance by any colleagues is also improving the compliance and containment of patients in the treatment of hepatitis C. So it gives a little bit more insight to which risk patients we have to uh, deal with and to offer more um, modalities to maintain those patients under surveillance. The Spanish study, uh, so-called Relink C strategy, looked for patients who were lost to follow up and tried to identify them, trying to catch up with them again and trying to get them back again to the linkage of care. And overall, they were quite successful. They identified uh, roughly um, 780 HCV positive patients and considered that um, uh, a retrieval um, would be necessary for 344. Of those um, who were uh, contacted, um, uh, actually only two thirds could actually be located. So there was already quite a substantial loss of patients in this linkage. But most importantly, the linkage actually to an appointment was most disappointing. So of those patients who were uh, able to be contacted and located, only less than 50% agreed for another appointment. Once they took advantage of the appointment, then the assessment was uh, almost uh, complete. A few patients were lost, and here 25 out of the 32 patients started on DAA therapy and have, of course, high chances to be uh, cured by the antiviral therapy. So it's a tedious approach, but it's absolutely worthwhile if they calculated by a Markov model the cost effectiveness of this approach. They could actually clearly 
identify that um, even with no intervention, but even better after linkage to care, the uh, overall costs were in the range as indicated in this table, and it would achieve a substantial decrease in patients to develop decompensated cirrhosis, to develop HCC, to require transplant, or to die from the liver disease. But expensive, you may argue in your healthcare setting whether this is cost-effective or not. Uh, tedious, you lose a lot of patients, hard work, but um, probably the only way in certain subpopulations really to be successful in eradicating hepatitis C according to WHO guidelines. Another uh, study uh, which uh, you know, was aimed to um, improve the management of patients um, investigated from the large astral studies whether the SVR4, so assessment for HCV RNA, four weeks after the end of therapy has the same predictive value of virologic cure compared to SVR after 12 weeks follow-up or 24 weeks of follow-up. Of course, mathematically, you may argue if you have such a high rate of sustained biologic response um, and we achieve in various parts of the astral trials um, cure rates somewhere between 97 to 99%, then of course, any time point after the end of therapy should really show a very high concordance um, to each other. So mathematically, what we actually uh, saw presented here is not terribly uh, surprising given the high sustained biologic response rate, but yet it is interesting to compare the SVR4 with the SVR12 concordance rate. And you see that here only three patients actually uh, had a disconcordant result. Three patients were uh, positive uh, at 12 weeks, but uh, were not yet positive after four weeks. The question always is here whether this is a late relapse or whether it's an early reinfection, hard to say, but the concordance here between SVR4 and SVR12 is at a range of 99.7% with a positive predictive value. So before you are losing the contact of a patient, because it's hard really to keep in in the uh, healthcare system, it's rather better to test at four weeks or perhaps even earlier um, to convince yourself and the patient that he was virally eradicated. And it's not absolutely necessary to contain a patient until 12 weeks after the end of therapy the concordance rate between four weeks after the end of therapy and 12 weeks is very high. So summarizing the key issues of hepatitis C, many strategies are developed to link HCV-positive patients to care with the goal of HCV elimination. And I would urge everybody really to have your own ideas, to be uh, uh, inventful, to be creative, really to um, offer patients optimal chances to be linked to the uh, treatment of hepatitis C. The astral studies indicated that SBR4 may be a very good predictor of the long-term treatment success, but even the full containment in the treatment, high compliance of the treatment itself is of course a very good predictor that SVR is achieved. Now, interesting in an emerging field are the treatment options for hepatitis delta. Just a brief uh, comment before, many regions have actually thought that delta hepatitis is exceedingly rare. But with better data on the country-specific epidemiology, we see that probably a lot of decoy infection in patients where S antigen positive is not diagnosed. So I can only urge you according to test according to international guidelines, every HBS antigen positive patient 
at least once for anti-Delta antibodies. And you, according to your country, have to expect that probably somewhere between 5 and 10% of the chronic hepatitis B patients are also infected with Delta. Delta is the most devastating uh, form of viral hepatitis, having the most aggressive um, um, clinical course with the earliest development of cirrhosis, decompensations, and a high need of liver transplantation. Therefore, treatment for Delta hepatitis is definitely warranted and necessary. In the past, we only had pegylated interferon available. This was the kind of standard of care. And here in this phase three trial, which was presented at EASL with an interim analysis at week 24, there was a comparison of Delta patients treated with the previous standard of care, 180 micrograms of pegylated interferon alpha to A. And this was compared to three other investigational arms, either the PEG interferon in combination with two milligrams of bolivertide uh, given subcutaneously on a daily basis, or the addition of 10 milligrams bolivertide um, in combination with pegylated interferon, or the monotherapy of bolivertide with 10 milligrams given once daily. And the data show here that the biologic response for interferon is in the expected 35 to 40%, but it can be more than doubled by the addition of two or 10 milligrams of bolivertide. And there was not a dose differences whether you added two milligrams or 10 milligrams. Keep in mind that in Europe, the two milligram dose is approved in monotherapy or in combination with a nucleotide analog. Bolivertide itself in the monotherapy achieved a biologic response somewhere in between with 72% of treated patients. Here you see on the left side, the median uh, HDV RNA decline in the respective groups. And here on the right panel, you see the normalization of ALT. And you see that the highest normalization of ALT was actually uh, achieved with um, the uh, bolivertide uh, monotherapy. And there is uh, a question whether interferon, which is well known, um, may have a little bit of uh, ALT increasing effects, which are unrelated to the viral infection, but rather related to the drugs, a phenomenon well known in hepatitis C, where some patients treated with pegylantifen alpha 2A at the end of therapy in hepatitis C had slightly elevated ALT, which normalized after stopping pegylantifen alpha 2A. So this needs to be elucidated, but overall the biologic response is clear, is better with the combination of pegylantifen plus bolivertide. There was another study, a phase three study, um, open-label randomized, which compared no treatment versus monotherapy with bolivertide, 2 milligrams and 10 milligrams. And those patients who initially started on no treatment, that they had an incentive to enter the trial, were offered bolivertide, 10 milligrams after 48 weeks. And the primary endpoint was here at week 144. Primary endpoint was either undetectable HDV RNA or at least a decrease of more than two log and the normalization of ALT at week 48. Here you see the data. The combined response was equally achieved in um, the combination doses, independent actually on the fact whether you added two or 10 milligrams bolivertide and the ALT normalization was also not different between the two investigational uh, groups as was no difference observed in the virologic response and both highly significantly better than patients who were initially for the first 48 weeks untreated. Safety, 
Um, big point, you know, um, the bolivertide is an entry inhibitor and therefore leads to an increase of bile acids in the serum of uh, the treated patients. However, um, it's a wonderful documentation that increased bile acids have nothing to do with the development of pruritus. That was a rumor for many years in hepatology. But here we see a clear increase in bile acids with the treatment of bolivertide, but no increased risk of developing any kind of pruritus. And overall, the 2 milligrams and the 10 milligrams had a very clear and safe profile with respect to subjective AEs and laboratory abnormalities. So very good news that this treatment is well tolerable and safe. Coming to a close, uh, I would like to introduce three interesting cases which were presented at ESL 2021. And the interesting part here with the three cases was that they were all suffering from HDV-associated liver cirrhosis, and they received bolivertide in a monotherapy uh, added to ongoing tenofovir therapy. But the treatment duration was in all those patients much longer than the current trial data where the uh, data have yet only been reported up to week 48. So there are patients who were treated for uh, three years um, or uh, two years, uh, and it's uh, good to have a look on those patients. And you see here patient um, one with a fantastic response of bolivertide, um, which was then uh, uh, stopped. Um, patients really got uh, a relapse again, and then was actually retreated. Patient number two was continuously treated, and you see that even beyond uh, a year of therapy, the treatment remains highly efficacious. Patients had a complete suppression of HDV RNA, remained safe and tolerable, and the same feature uh, is observed here in patient number three. Of course, a mini-series of three uh, patients, but it gives hope that indeed the HDV RNA reduction and ALT normalization can be maintained much longer than one year, perhaps even indefinitely. We really need to see how long this treatment has to be maintained and here more biologic data as well as safety data are required. There was a little bit of evidence which I do not consider terribly valid because of the potential variability, um, but it was claimed by the author that in one patient the portal hypertension improved with a regression of esophageal varices and that uh, is a clear statement which is in line with the clinical data I presented before that there are asymptomatic increases in bilirubin and bile salts which are definitely not increasing any pruritus. And it is interesting that all patients actually were started on the 10 milligram dose and then received a, a continuous reduction of the bolivertide dose and the antiviral effect was completely maintained with the two milligrams supporting the two milligram dose, which is currently approved in the European Union. So the summaries on Delta is that the two MUR studies demonstrate clearly that bolivertide uh, is associated with a significant decline in HDV RNA and normalization of ALT. The combination with pegylated interferon demonstrates synergistic antiviral activity, but we need more data really to optimize the combination, whether this has to be maintained as a combination therapy beyond week 48, or whether a shorter combination with pegylated alpha is sufficient. Good news is that the manufacturer of pegylated alpha 2A, which actually had an initial decision to take this compound off the market, now made a decision to keep it in the market so pegylated different alpha to A will remain available for patients which are infected with B and Delta for antiviral therapy. And again, all findings support the current conditional approval 
of bolivertide, two milligrams in the European Union. With that, I'm now happy to take questions. So um, first question. So based on the results of the nuke stop study, do you ever, do you think it is feasible to stop treatment in some patients with hepatitis C that are, that have been suppressed on nucleoside analog therapy? And is that something you do in your practice? So we are talking on hepatitis B, just to yes. make it clear, B like beta. Yes, um, I am uh, offering this patient, uh, this uh, option to my patients who are on um, complete suppression of um, uh, viral replication for hepatitis B for at least three to four years. Um, uh, I am extremely strict that I am not offering it to any patients which has advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis because I'm worried that the flare which occurs in five to 10% of patients may uh, lead to decompensation of the disease. And I only recommend it to patients according to the large multicenter study, which was presented and not yet published in full uh, last ASLD. I only offer it to patients who have an HBS quantitative level below a thousand. There, in those patients who have less than a thousand HBS antigen, the chances of achieving a functional cure is more than 30%. That's a real big number, while the chances of losing S antigen and to achieve a zero conversion in those who have an S antigen level above 1,000 is so rare that I cannot justify stopping the nuke therapy. Thank you. So second question, also on hepatitis B. Um, do you think that the results of the Korean um, insurance data, database data, support starting patients with hepatitis B on therapy earlier, earlier or at different thresholds than those we currently use? As we actually have no data why those patients are on treatment, we can only speculate that those patients actually did not meet the uh, national indications for antiviral therapy and had therefore an HPV DNA level below 1,000 um, uh, 2000 international units per ml. Um, uh, you know, it makes me, it's not going to convince me that a patient who has no indication, uh, who is just an S antigen carrier with um, intermittent um, plips of HPV DNA detection, that this is an indication to put this patient on an antiviral therapy um, of the idea. Uh, that uh, we may prevent any development of extrahepatic malignancy. I think this is not justifying to extend the treatment indications. But you have these borderline patients. You have patients which may have a family history um, of uh, certain uh, uh, solid tumor types we uh, just uh, saw uh, being increased. Uh, you may have patients who are borderline with their viral load with respect to um, antiviral therapy. And uh, it uh, motivates me, um, especially uh, in elderly uh, patients who have these borderline indications to be rather um, positive in starting antiviral therapy than in uh, being reluctant. So it adds a little bit um, in borderline cases uh, towards uh, the indication, but it's not fundamentally changing um, the thresholds uh, when I initiate antiviral therapy in E-antigen negative patients. So again, going back to the NUCE-STOP study, does um, hepatitis B virus genotype affect your decision to stop therapy? I think we don't have enough data so far. So um, there are apparently, but this is not a controlled study, but if you look for data which arise from Asia, the um, results and the efficacy of stop nuke seem to be, it's a comparison across trials, so it's more gut feeling than scientifically proven, um, scientifically proven. But it appears that uh, in Europe and North America, um, the stop nuke seems to be more efficacious than in Asia. This may have 
two different reasons. Um, uh, either it is uh, the reason of the genotype, which uh, would mean that the genotype B and C, which are more prevalent in uh, uh, Southeast Asia, um, have a lower chance of uh, being successful with the stop nuke therapy than the genotype A and in particular D, which is most prevalent in the E antigen negative population in, in Europe. The other explanation may be that the percentage of patients who acquired hepatitis B vertically by mother to child transmission may be the key uh, parameter by which uh, you may achieve a functional cure or not. Therefore, we cannot answer it at the moment. It could be either way, could be either the by chance finding, it could be the transmission, the different route of transmission and the duration of the infection, or it could be the genotype or it could be a combination of all these parameters. We just don't know at the moment, but uh, certainly the ethnicity may be an additional parameter to consider in the stop-nuke uh, strategy. Okay, switching to a few questions on hepatitis C. Can a patient treated with treated hepatitis C in the past four years have a recurrence of his hepatitis C infection during lymphoma treatment um, with our CHOP chemotherapy? I think we have very solid data uh, here which is excluding this possibility. There are a couple of case reports uh, in this respect. There was also some reports in the past of so-called occult hepatitis C, but uh, the methodology of those uh, trials was always criticized. They had issues and problems. And overall, the understanding is that an immunosuppressive or chemotherapy or whatever immune modulation uh, therapy uh, uh, in hepatitis C or past hepatitis C does not lead to reactivation. Um, and this is a completely different ballgame compared to, to, to hepatitis B. And this is clearly linked to uh, the differences of a DNA virus compared to an RNA virus uh, such as hepatitis C. So I would not be worried and I would definitely not recommend any kind of preemptive therapy in cured hepatitis C patients before starting chemotherapy or immunosuppressive therapy. Again, a hepatitis C question. So in the pharmacist hepatitis C screening study, do you know if the treatment was initiated by the pharmacists themselves or did they refer out their um, positive patients to other medical providers? No, I think this uh, would be legally not possible that the pharmacist uh, would uh, initiate uh, the antiviral therapy just uh, by law. Uh, the treatment has to be initiated by an uh, accredited uh, physician. And uh, this is certainly not uh, what we should aim for, that uh, the treatment is actually then uh, performed by uh, non-medical specialists. Um, there are various aspects uh, around hepatitis C, which has to be fully assessed and uh, evaluated by a trained uh, physician. Um, just uh, like to mention truck-truck interactions like to uh, add the interpretation of fibrosis stage, the necessity of follow-up for HCC surveillance in those patients. So this is definitely not arguing um, that other healthcare professionals should treat. It's rather an argument to involve those people in the screening and the linkage of care. But I'm a firm believer that the treatment should be confined for uh, clinicians. Again, another hepatitis C question um, from the Sokowski study. Do you think that the result of the re retrospective study on sofosbuvir, hepatosphere, and SVR4 will extend to other HCV regimens? Mathematically, it must. You know, if you have treatment options where you achieve 98, 99, sometimes 100% sustained biologic response then you don't need any mathematics any longer to compare SVR4 versus SVR12 versus SVR24. Then the end of treatment result would have a high concordance already with any 
time point where you assess SVR. Um, therefore, uh, this kind of analysis uh, is um, uh, from, a, from a theoretical standpoint not uh, very exciting. It's just giving you some confidence in patients which are hard to follow up uh, that whatever time point you choose after the end of therapy, uh, it's probably just sufficient to uh, convince uh, the payers, the patients, the relatives, the friends of the patient that he is actually cured from the virus. Um, okay, switching to a question on hepatitis delta. Do you believe that there is a possibility to use uh, the new drug, Belevertide, in decompensated hepatitis delta cirrhosis? Yeah, difficult question. We have absolutely no data so far. Therefore, I would be very cautious from the mechanism of action because it's really uh, inhibiting the uh, the entry. It's uh, interacting with the NCTP uh, transporter. Um, I would not expect any uh, major um, uh, safety issues, um, but uh, clearly... Uh, it would be currently in off-label use, and um, uh, it should be uh, made clear to the patient and also to uh, potential payers uh, that this is an off-label use. But I could understand in very desperate situations where, for example, a patient is waiting for uh, uh, a transplantation or waiting for an organ, uh, that in such desperate uh, situations, uh, individual decisions will be made to treat decompensated uh, patients, but uh, currently, really, it's not based on any data, and it's clearly off-label. Okay, I'm going to ask you two more questions, and they're both yeah, on... Definitely, I would like to add, in these patients with more, even, even in patients with cirrhosis, that's, I think, a very important point for uh, everybody who is listening here tonight. Um, the, the point of using interferon in delta hepatitis, um, I think, is an interesting option for non-cirrhotic patients. I would be very cautious, even in compensated cirrhotic patients, to use interferon. We have seen patients being treated with interferon for delta hepatitis in compensated stage, which actually decompensated during interferon-based therapy. So here, you must be very cautious and if you choose to use interferon in patients with compensated cirrhosis, you must uh, offer those patients a very stringent and narrow um, uh, surveillance. I would never use interferon in a patient with decompensated cirrhosis. Here, the off-label use would be definitely restricted to the bolivertide monotherapy. But again, we have not even for the monotherapy any data, and uh, therefore, it's not generally recommended. I'm going to ask you two more questions, and they're both on hepatitis B. Okay, so this is on the Korean database insurance uh, database study on extrahepatic cancers. So patients who were with chronic hepatitis B who were not treated presented a higher risk of developing kidney cancer compared to treated patients into controls. Do you think that tenofovir might have something to do with this finding? One would need really to compare um, uh, in Korea then patients, whether they were treated on entecavir and tenofovir. That, of course, in Asian country is a big issue and a big problem. We have uh, some data from Asia currently suggesting that patients who are continuously treated with tenofovir have a lower risk of developing cancer compared to those with entecavir. But methodologically, there are problems because uh, the drugs became available at different time points. And uh, typically, the cohorts are not really perfectly matched. It's a post hoc uh, analysis with propensity matching, which is used in these comparison. And uh, of course, you could do that also in the Korean database with extrahepatic malignancy uh, to compare entecavir with tenofovir. But I uh, must uh, make everybody aware that these uh, propensity analysis uh, have risk of false interpretation. And uh, therefore, uh, we 
can suspect uh, something like this, but uh, there is no evidence whatsoever so far, even with long-term treatment with tenofovir, that this is increasing uh, the risk of kidney cancer. Uh, therefore, I would be very cautious in uh, bringing up such associations. Okay, this will be your last question. Were there any new data on use of new biomarker assays that can uh, guide either stopping nucleotides in patients with hepatitis B or re reliably pre predict biologic cure of hepatitis B? Yeah, we, are, we have a lot of uh, new markers in uh, uh, hepatitis B, pregenonic, RNA, uh, correlated antigen. But uh, in the end, um, uh, we have not seen the full publication of the German multicenter study, but from the analysis which have been done, the only biomarker which uh, appeared to be a, a very good predictor was a quantitative assessment of the HBS antigen. And the threshold here was uh, at 1,000 IUs per ml. The chances of functional cure in patients with less than uh, thousands with stop nuke strategy was good. It was very low above the thousand. And for other treatment modalities which are arising, um, uh, companies and investigators are heavily looking uh, out for biomarkers which can predict which of the newly developed drug have the best chances uh, of achieving functional cure, but yet there is no uh, uh, clear signal that any of the old or the new biomarkers may help us to guide and predict the antiviral response and the rate of functional cure with any antiviral compound. Thank you, Dr. Zoism, for this interesting and comprehensive discussion. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. As a reminder, for full coverage of EASL 2021 on the Clinical Care Options website, which includes downloadable slides and on-demand webinars, please click on the links in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a good day.